Hello and welcome to episode 105 of Tea or Books. In this episode, we'll be talking big families versus small families in books. And in the second half, we'll be talking about two books by George Orwell, 1984 and Animal Farm. Uh, if you're expecting different books, you were not mistaken. Uh, Rachel is not uh, available for this episode. She's very busy. So I put a call out on our Patreon uh, where people can support the podcast and get extra bonus bits. And I said, guys, I need a co-host. I need someone to come and help record 105. And thankfully, Arwen said that she would come and do that. Welcome, Arwen. Hello. Thank you, Simon. <laughs> it's great to be on here. <laughs> Very pleased to have you uh, here and very pleased that you were willing to come and do that. Um, obviously, people don't know who you are. Well, they might know who you are, but most people probably don't know who you are. So I'm just going to start by getting to know you a bit more. So Arwen, um, tell us about yourself. Is that too broad? <laughs> tell us what you want, want us to know about yourself. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I am, I suppose I'll start with my job. I am a librarian, um, but it's Excellent. a bit different. I'm a librarian at a research laboratory um, for the Medical Research Council. So although um, my working life is dealing with information, including books, they're very different from the kind of books that come <laughs> um, in that my library collection probably has about two novels in it. And um, <laughs> the are books with titles such as Molecular Biology of the Cell or Yeast Protocols or Cell Signaling. <laughs> so, um, part of this, I, I started listening to tea or books um, when I was working at home during COVID mm. lockdown. Um, and it was to bring me back to books and the kind of books that I love or would be interested in um, when my life had kind of been very much reduced to spreadsheets and emails and being very transactional. <laughs> um, I used to work in a science library when I was, a, I was a librarian for a while myself and molecular biology of the cell I was very familiar with. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Enormous. Um, <laughs> what are the two novels that you have in the library? Um, there is one who, uh, one, I, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It was written by one of the scientists that had worked at the laboratory. And the other one is one called Lab Girl. Um, oh, wow. and I can't remember that. So that's a story about, um, being a female scientist. Um, but I have to confess, I have not read it yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it could, could be either brilliant or the reverse. Yes. <laughs> yes. Title. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and what what sort of books are you into normally? Um, well, it's got a, a lot of them are uh, so sort of within what I think of classic teal books. Books, so I, I love E. F. Benson. <laughs> um, Excellent. I've been in, very much enjoying Diary of a Provincial Lady uh, because it, it kind of chimes with, even though. My experience of, of being a mother is very different, not being a sort of uh, upper middle class woman of the 1930s. <laughs> there are many themes that are still the same. Um, but I also um, have read, I suppose, linking in with the George Orwell later is um, into some science fiction. So things like Philip K. Dick and um, Ian Banks mm -hmm. and that side of things. But I, I try and read quite widely. widely. So I've been trying to make a concerted effort in the last couple of years to read more of the classics that um, perhaps I avoided when I was younger. 
Um, so Very interesting. Been... Any any successes? Uh, yeah. <laughs> any particular successes or failures, I guess? Great Expectations was a success. Um, I read Tale of Two Cities when I was at university and, and really not clicked with it. Um, mm. So I kind of avoided Dickens since then. Um, and I, I kind of forced myself to read Great Expectations over Christmas this year. And and it was very rewarding and I you know just like I'm, I'm glad I made myself do that so um but I'm still working up to fake facing up to a Bronte <laughs> that's my confession oh right <laughs> <laughs> yeah I well I love Dickens and I I um A Tale of Two Cities I listened to as an audiobook read by Martin mm-hmm. Jarvis which which I think was a good way in he was very funny um I think I've said on the podcast before I think my issue with how Dickens is uh perceived i guess is that the adaptations are always miserable about social justice and the books i think yes. are really funny so. that that was um, i think i was surprised by the humor um mm-hmm. and also um you kind of how he writes so well of perspectives from a young person's view of pip you know mm-hmm. how he sees his family and how um you know he makes the errors of a, a kind of quite an impetuous young person but um also how older people project onto young people um can project negativity onto them and and what their expectation of you know ne'er-do-well young people will be and and I thought that was um <laughs> that that I wasn't expecting I think so yeah. Uh, yeah so which is your which would you where would you say to go with Dickens after that if you were going to mm, recommend a book good question so my favorite by him is Our Mutual Friend. I've only read okay. five, maybe. So, um, uh, and I, I didn't love David Copperfield. And mm-hmm. I did like Hard Times, but I'm not sure that I'd necessarily recommend that, that <laughs> to everyone. So yeah, <laughs> I did it at school. And I think I was the only person in the school who came out with the love of Dickens after, okay. <laughs> after we studied it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Our Mutual Friend is is vast world and very... Um, it's quite surreal in places, okay. uh, and and the usual sort of Dickens humour. And for Brontes, I would, I mean, I think maybe our first ever episode we talked about Brontes, um, and I am a big advocate of Anne. I think she's the best place to start. I think Agnes Grey okay. is a wonderful book. Okay. Which maybe we did an episode on, but um, yeah, I think uh, I, if I say Jane is overrated, then people will unsubscribe. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I think Anne Bronte did everything Charlotte Bronte did, but better. Okay, okay. I should try that because I've had the, the the guilt of Jane Eyre in that I bought a copy of it when we were in holiday in Bath when I was probably about twelve, and started okay. reading it and gave up. And I, I, you know, it's like I've got to force myself to do this. I have to get back into this book. <laughs> Although I did watch the adaptation by the National Theatre um, oh, online, wow. so that's I'm hoping that will give me a, a way in. Or give me a hand into it again and I have read White Sargasso Sea oh there you go um, <laughs> but partly that was it's a much shorter book for a start and seems to cover a lot of ground in um, <laughs> interesting such a short it. space yeah. a, Jane, a Jane Eyre prequel for those who, who mm. don't know um, sort of take Bertha Mason's backstory but I won't tell you who Bertha Mason is in case you've not read Jane Eyre yes. <laughs> so it could be a big surprise <laughs> Uh, and what are you reading at the moment? Um, at the moment, I'm I'm on my first Arnold Bennett, so Anna of the Five oh. Towns. Um, have you oh, Have you read that one? I haven't read that one. I do love mm-hmm. Arnold Bennett. Um, yeah, I've read. Um, what have I read? 
um, The Old Wives' Tale, I really enjoyed. Uh, Rice Man Steps, I read last year, mm-hmm. that's really good. I think maybe we talked about that in an episode where we talked about bookshops, maybe, because of how it's largely set okay. in a bookshop. Yeah. Um, and then I've done audiobooks of a few of his much shorter uh, his books, including one he wrote called uh, Literary Taste, where he essentially lays out all the books one must read in order to okay. say if one has literary taste. And the okay. list is about a thousand books long. So, um, yeah. Maybe I should look at that one. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like your, your reading would have to end at 1910 or something whenever it okay. was published. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Anna, five times, is it good? It's got, the first chapter, I wasn't sure. Um, and then it's it's got very good. Um, what's quite interesting in it is it's given me another insight into um, kind of Methodism when it was in its heyday in the potteries. Um, because on one side of my family, they were all chapel goers. But mm. um, kind of my experience of this was a child um, when sort of in the 80s when um you get I mean, chapel was lovely because there'd be all these lovely old ladies that could really sing a hymn and it was just very <laughs> um just a lovely place to go but this is where um it's methodism and this is is really a force to be reckoned with um and although you sort of read the theory about the spread of methodism in the industrial towns it's kind of seeing it from more more personal insight of the the people involved with it so that's one aspect that's interesting um and also I, I didn't expect it to be fem not not feminist issues but issues over um male so the father's control over the daughter and control over mm. money and her money so you you wouldn't necessarily to say this was written by a man I think he writes very perceptively about mm-hmm. um and and its sort of experience as a as a female of that era which is quite is surprising me um really i think so yeah i found that with yeah. the old wife's tale as well which i i don't entirely recall the plot but i think there were two sisters and one of them her, her experience staying in whichever english town they were in and the, and the other one going to france uh, and again but it's basically from i don't think it's first person but it is basically their points of view and it was very sensitively done mm. yeah um so yes I, i'm also reading at the moment because i generally have more than one book on the go um glad to hear I, it yeah <laughs> i had um caught up with a book that i had bought at university from a charity shop and not read last year so that was more flanders and that mm. has set me off on a daniel defoe streak oh, wow. um so last year i read um oh it's a the um plague year Dyra Plague Year. Oh that? gosh, oh, what a what a time to read one. it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um and now so I'm trying I've started on Robinson Crusoe, but I kind of feeling I'm on diminishing returns now because I think oh, no. Flanders okay. was the best one. <laughs> <laughs> I have read no Daniel Defoe, although I did read okay. Foe by J.M. Kutzia, which is sort of a mm-hmm. retelling of Robinson Crusoe. Um I was going to add more, but I don't remember anything about it. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, I had high, mm-hmm. high expectations, and I don't know. I, I need to get back back in again, but I, I was slightly dwindling a bit, and I'm thinking mm. it's quite early in the book. He's already been shipwrecked. <laughs> he's made a shelter, and he's catching food. 
where else can this go from <laughs> this next? point? Is this going to be a lot of mending the shelter and catching more food? <laughs> yes, it's a period of literature where they were not afraid to repeat the same scene over and over yes. again. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's my chief recollection of um, Pamela by uh, Richardson. He says, okay. yes, Richardson, uh, which is, I don't know if you've read Pamela, but uh, uh, no. woman get, or young, young woman gets kidnapped by um, master who then repeatedly want, tries to rape her and uh, essentially it's many many scenes of her just managing to escape him um, and since it's told through I don't know if it's letters or diaries but she's always finding some way to, to note these things down from within a yes. cupboard or something so it's <laughs> <laughs> some, some realism master uh, th- then the power of her virtue over- overwhelms him he yes. becomes a good man so yes. spoilers but that happens about halfway through the book and you just see many examples of, of her them being virtuous together. <laughs> uh, well, I am currently reading um, a 19th century book and a 21st century book, so I'm skipping my normal comfort zone of the 20th century. I've, ju- I've okay. just started a book called uh, The Dust Never Settles by Karina Licorice Quinn. And the reason I'm reading that is that Karina is a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was published last year, and it's, um, it's magical realism. Uh, it's about uh, a woman who goes home from hmm, <laughs> I want to say London <laughs> it's as bad I only, only read it yesterday home from some place that isn't Lima to Lima uh, and <laughs> to try and sell her ancestral home but her ancestral home is not, is while supposedly uninhabited is filled with the ghosts of many previous generations or I guess not necessarily ghosts but just the the, the personhoods I suppose mm-hmm. um, and Karina is a very good writer. I, magical realism is a world I know very little about, and I feel quite at sea. So. I was going to say, how do you how yeah. do you normally get on with magical realism? <laughs> yes, um, mixed. So I'm trying to think. Mm. I mean, I possibly haven't read enough to have a normal. I think I've probably only read three before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm now trying to remember what, what they are. Um, Kamchatka by by um, Marcelo Frigueres, I think was, uh, and I enjoyed that a lot. And then I read. Mm-hmm. Sleepwalking Land by somebody else <laughs> set in Mozambique, um, and that I just found quite baffling. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I I love books where the reality is played with a little bit, but I tend to like there to be firm rules, like in like in Miss Hargraves, the book I talk about a lot, <laughs> mm. where um, a woman is invented, or you know, there's one thing that goes that changes, and everyone has to deal with that. Whereas magical realism, of course. Uh, the rules are not even there in the first place, really, or at least it's got a different set of rules that you're never quite never quite explained. Mm. Um, how how do you feel with magical realism? Um, well, I think it's one of those ones where it's very easy for it to start going <laughs> not horribly <laughs> wrong, but it, it's um, I think because sometimes you can just lose your thread. Going, I just you cross mm-hmm. over that line where you go, I don't believe this anymore, and I'm starting to you know you lose your connection with what's happening yeah and you just think no this is just becoming a bit a bit ridiculous now but I think when it works it it can be very powerful yeah and I definitely keep going because partly because Queen's my friend and because it it is Mm -hmm. really well written yeah I think maybe I just need to make my peace with not really entirely knowing where I am or what or where anyone else is no, it's, I think it's a bit like um, stream of consciousness is that you have to go, mm. right, I'm just going to stop trying to be in control of this and let <laughs> it wash over me and that will 
hopefully that will work yeah, when you, you come through it. Yeah, and I'm on much safer ground with the audiobook I'm listening to, which is Anthony Trollope's autobiography, uh, which was released posthumously. And it's very, the, at the beginning, it is a bit about his school days, and he does mention some personal things in passing, but it is mostly about his career, both his career in the post office, and I'm now on his career in writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's very, um, I guess, clear-eyed on writing being a profession by which one can earn money. So he's yes. <laughs> just was, <laughs> was listening this morning to a bit where he's talking about the sort of infamous bit about how he's keen to write, um, I think it's 25 pages a day or something. He's very, he has a set amount yeah. of time. And he says, some people think that writers should sit and wait for inspiration, but no one would tell a shoe mender to sit and wait for inspiration. <laughs> so <laughs> which I thought was uh, you know, you know, good insight. Uh, and I, I, mean, I love Trollope, although I've only read, I think three of his books because they are doorstoppers. But um, yes, yeah, yeah. Have you? Read I, I haven't gone there yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think, he, I think okay, if I'm, it's um, if I, 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 if I can read more Dickens, then maybe I can uh, mm, mm. feel I've exercised enough to have the strength to uh, face that. <laughs> <laughs> Trollope. I think of him as being a sort of meeting, sort of halfway point between Dickens and Austen, maybe slightly more towards Austen, mm-hmm. uh, in that he has that the uh the insights and the and the um i guess the the layered characters and the and the clever plots of austin with was also having sort of some of the exuberance of of dickens and mm. and the ex- sort of witty turns of phrase of both of them i suppose uh was of course being his own man but um yeah i think he's wonderful uh, so the first half, I, I asked Arwen to come up with a topic because whenever the, there's an opportunity for someone else to come up with a topic, I will take it. Uh, and you suggested uh, big families in literature versus small families in literature. Um, so I'm going to hand over to you to, to say why you thought this, why you wanted to discuss this and any initial thoughts. Um, I think partially because um, often it's through books that we get to um, see families and um, maybe get expect because we can only experience our own families in in everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I think often so the literature of of different eras reflects societal attitudes towards families, um, mm-hmm. or maybe can also um, sometimes it it promoted. Um, what society thought was maybe an ideal family or often made sort of value judgments about different types yeah. of families, I think. So I, I thought that gave um, quite a range of different ways to, to look at them. Um, and I think m- particularly because I'm an only child, I'm quite aware that the only child in literature is often portrayed in a particular kind of way. Interesting, um, yeah. <laughs> But also recently, I've I've read um, a few books that, as an adult only child, um, are some of the few books that actually um, I found have been quite accurate portrayals of of some of the of how that feels or what particular responsibilities or bonds that there are in that smaller family. So I think that that's why. I chose that, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's start with those examples. Which What have you read that did it well? Um, so I think, uh, so it's particularly, I've been reading um, Anita Bruckner's 
working my way through Anita Bruckner's mm. um, novels. And she's sort of known for writing about lonely women. Now, I'm not saying I'm not a lonely woman <laughs> in, in that respect. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> but it's one of the um, times where you feel there's this tight bond between... It's, it's generally a daughter and her parents and mm. um the responsibilities and ties that um place limits on the child even not necessarily with the parents um actively planning mm. to do so but, but i think it is that uh there are these responsibilities and and sometimes these responsibilities it, it becomes expressed um even when the parents have moved on, um, with the kind of like the weight of uh, their possessions and belongings and uh, fur- mm. you know, furniture and decor. Um, and this, so often if it can feel like that the adult child is is trapped <laughs> by all the, well, as we call them, tra- trappings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. it's, it's, not something that I've I've kind of read in or encountered being portrayed in other other books. I think because often you have um, yeah. uh, dealing with parents. It's about um, you know in classic literature, often it's about inheritance and and those kind mm. of things. Well, this is inheritance is an issue because it will always come to that that adult only child. But also that's kind of a burden to them as well. So I thought that's that's quite a contrast to me. Um, and then thinking about children's literature, um, there are there's the sort of contrast of kind of what the classic children's literature is about: a large family of siblings who go mm, on an adventure. Mm. <laughs> um, and often <laughs> yeah, only yeah. children are either spoilt or an orphan. And there's generally something that's gone wrong, <laughs> or there's something strange about them. Um, <laughs> although there are some examples where that's not the case. But um, so I don't know, Simon. What do what do you think about uh, whether that the yeah. small family or the large family? <laughs> well, I mean, as, as listeners probably know, I grew up with a twin brother, so there's just the two of us. Um, and whilst obviously that means we're not only children, certainly I can um, empathise with my type of childhood being shown as being often strange in books there's often something slightly weird about twins in books as well um uh well when you suggested it, I, I first thought about the opening lines of the brontes went to woolworths by rachel ferguson have you have you read that i haven't read that one though yeah, that could be an interesting way into the Brontes. Yes, <laughs> which, there might uh, be. Is about, <laughs> um, yeah, it's set in the, well, written and set in the 30s about this family of daughters where um, the Brontes turn up, but quite, <laughs> play quite small roles. It's basically, the family has a very th- fine line between reality and fiction. They sort of make up um, lives for people that they, they tangentially know but the first lines are um how i loathe that kind of novel which is about a lot of sisters it is usually (laughs) called they were seven or three not out and one spends one's entire time trying to sort them all out and muttering was it isabel who drank or gertie which one was it of and which was it who ran away with the gigolo amy or pauline 
and which of their separated husbands was Lionel, Isabel's, or Amy's, etc., etc. And yes, we can certainly see a type of <laughs> book there, and a type of book that I love. So, Guard Your Daughters by Diana Tatton is a good example of this sprawling family of, I think there's five daughters in that one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I captured the castle, so unless it was only three of them, but uh, the famous five, you know, all yeah. these staples of child children's books or young adult books, I guess. Although having said that, George is an only child, isn't she? In the famous, she five. is, she's, and she <laughs> she's the oh she's cousins. she's a bit you know she's the odd one that doesn't fit. But on yeah. the on the other hand, she is about the most interesting character. Yes, I think. Um, <laughs> yes. because Second often to Jimmy, but... <laughs> yes, because in in these books is it's like well you have sensible older sister, adventurous elder mm-hmm. brother. Um, slightly ditzy one, and it, it, it's like yeah, yeah. in the families who go, "Is this because you can, you know, these these are not fully rounded human beings? You can just allocate this is the, your role in this family um, yeah, as an yeah. author, and go right. We've covered all the bases there. We've got the sensible <laughs> one, <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, all the different types. Of, yeah, <laughs> but I, I don't know whether that actually well. happens in families with siblings whether people get allocated their role i don't know whether that actually reflects how it happens <laughs> but uh, yeah i was talking to someone a while ago who uh was quite aggrieved because they i can't remember uh, exactly who it was but i know that they were an adult maybe even middle-aged and they were frustrated that their their role in the family what they their, their mother had sort of assigned them more roles and her sister mm. was the one who was the one who travels yes and she was thinking i travel i've traveled much more than my sister but my mom always insists yes. that my sister is the one who travels yes. <laughs> um i mean certainly again being a twin very used to being you know, having to have the types you know i'm the one who did literature my brother is the one who did maths etc but uh with, <laughs> within the family unit perhaps perhaps less so but i suppose yeah you see these things working themselves out much more in children's literature. I was really interested in you talking about it in literature when you get when people get to the age that they're having to start thinking about their parents as older people or you know mm. even the parent, end of their parents' lives that sort of role because generally in novels I'm going to make a sweeping statement here. Generally, I think you you often don't know how many siblings a character has because it's not relevant to the plot and it never never comes up. Um, you might know how many children they've got if they're at that stage, but. Um, I, I do always find it, uh, I do find it interesting when you see the brothers and sisters coming out of the woodwork or seeing how people react, interact with brothers and sisters as an adult if you haven't seen them as children in a novel because it is, it's, I think it's a relationship that is talked about less in literature than um, in, in sort of in, in maybe disproportionately to how important the relationships are I, perhaps as an only child you won't agree with me perhaps you see them there I, a lot I, d- I don't know there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I'm also biased because my brother is my best friend so I think yes, we have we are yeah, we are at yeah. opposite ends of the spectrum here of, of no siblings and being extremely close to a sibling yes. I imagine most people <laughs> fall somewhere between the two but you know good to have the different <laughs> the different opposing views um, um can you think of any adult adult novels where only children have been done badly so now you're saying children's novels it's quite often done badly but yeah you see it come up in adult novels I think it's as you say often you don't know in adult novels like who has siblings and who doesn't so I can't yeah I can't think as, as this is what I say with the Anita Bruckner it's the only sort as in not children's books where you see an only child being 
as a as a character and that being a, an important yeah, yeah. aspect to their identity and who they are because um, I am struggling to think of any examples at all of, yeah, <laughs> of novels with yeah. adult only children yeah um, I'm sure um, they exist there's, there's also something uh, thinking about um, uh, examples of single parent families um, mm-hmm. where uh, so these sort of came in later on I think in the 20th century but often is sort of dealt with in quite a kitchen sinky kind of way um but there are some so i think uh so in children's literature i think roald dahl one of the best portrayals like lovely portrayals is um with roald dahl danny champion of the world where the father Mm, and the son so it's a single father with his son and they have such a, a a a wonderful relationship um, where they both they both they both look after each other, um, so I think that's dealt with very well. Um, but one thing I did think yeah, about that is, is that theme. this era of classic children's literature. So you're thinking about the the Enid Blyton and this kind of thing. Um, is that actually after the after the Second World War and during the Second World War there must have been a lot of single parents <laughs> because mm, fathers yeah. will have been killed, but you you never see them. Um, and that I, I can't think of any that have been put, any, but like from the sixties, you might get the single mother, you know, is the, the kind yeah. of stereotypical single mother, but there would have been a lot of single mothers before then, but I, I can't yeah. think of an example of that being portrayed in, in books. Yeah. Cause I think of it uh, being a, a lot about novels about unmarried women because there weren't enough men to go mm. around, sort of. Yeah. yeah. And I think of, we've done lots of episodes where we talk about those sorts of examples. But you're right. Um, I'm sure people listening are coming up with all sorts of examples. I see. <laughs> <laughs> Usually they would love to hear them. But yeah, there must have been. I, I, I guess I can think of some where someone turns up and uh, they allege that they've been married <laughs> to, to a soldier and no one's quite sure. I think. Um, Maybe a change for the better by Susan Hill that I read recently. Maybe that did, but yeah, there must have been all sorts. And it's not like uh, issue of um, disgrace or you know any sort of anxiety about writing about it would have come into play there in the way that it might have done in that period if if it was unmarried mothers that sort of thing. Yeah, I wonder hmm. whether it's sort of a societal not wanting to look at what was a painful issue at the time of you know because it goes into the 1950s where you have this idealization of the kind of nuclear family um mm-hmm. so i wonder whether it was maybe just a bit too raw for people i don't know it was um but i just find it interesting it's sort of a big gap but of of what yeah. people must have been experiencing and i can't think of an example of, of that <laughs> in a book Yes, I think is it. Um, does, one of the stuff come to mind is the Nutmeg Tree by Marjorie Sharp, which is about um, uh, a woman called Julia, who's a wonderful character, very exuberant, and she. I th- I'm going to hopefully get the details of this right. Uh, had a daughter with a soldier uh, who was she was married to, who then mm. died, and then she basically ships off the daughter to some relatives okay. uh, to keep living her exciting life. But, but decides <laughs> when the daughter gets sort of sort of to an interesting age that she wants to be back in her life and, and how that does or does not go well. Um, 
so that you know the idea of your family suddenly expanding is quite interesting as well i suppose i am in general quite drawn to the particularly when it is about children the big the big boisterous family of lots of lots of moving parts and uh, lots of interaction and adventures and things um if there's too many i do tend to get confused of who is who have been known to make notes uh, about <laughs> who's going on which when you when you find you have to make a lot of notes there are um yeah it's hard to think of anything more than maybe one actor per person i'm re- i'm reading the feast by margaret kennedy for the next for the next podcast which is it's not a big family it's lots of different guests at a hotel but there's i think 25 main characters oh. <laughs> so just working out who's related to whom is about as far as i can get uh with that one <laughs> um so would yeah. you say that's more the sort of um going for the well i suppose uh the big jolly family a kind of model. yeah 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 i i think that that one is it's got two big jolly families in yes. it as well as <laughs> over as well as uh you know the sort of en masse because i guess you get sim- sort of similar sort of vibes of a big family when, when you're in a book set in a place that feels like a home whether that's a boarding house or a hotel mm. or a, mm. a retirement community or something where they're obviously not a family but the the interactions become a bit like as though they were i think i think one of the one example of that that i particularly love was the um uh tales of the city uh by mm. armstead i say Morpin, but i've heard people pronounce it Mopa. anyway oh, I don't know, um actually. so yeah. it's a uh, um it turns out the two of the characters are related, but you don't know that at the start. But it's um, mm. so Mrs. Madrigal is this eccentric landlady who um, uh, she has all these tenants in a house that that they become a family. They are they are a form of family, um, and I do quite like that sort of composite, not mm-hmm. you know, not not blood related, but a, a composite family. Um, and I suppose that's in the uh, Moomins. So the the core family is a small yes, family, yeah. but they have so many <laughs> add-ons, um, which <laughs> a- allows for provide you with a probably a much richer scope for storytelling and um, characters than maybe um, having everyone from the same background or having the same. Uh, you know, this this more uniformity thing of the classic big family in children's literature, perhaps. So, I think I think and, yeah, yeah. And there's a feeling of particularly, I guess, maybe families in adult literature that there's something inescapable about them, where, where people stay in touch with people that they might otherwise never see again, but just because they're related. Um, whereas the composite family has that that added bit where. It could all come crashing down. <laughs> um, yeah, when you when you were growing up and reading about these big adventurous families, uh, it, what what were your what, what were you thinking? Were you thinking I, I'd like to be part of this, or I don't recognise this, or this I'm glad I'm not part of this? <laughs> or... I think it's like oh, I wish I wish my life was like you know it, it very much was. I wish I was so. Uh, Swallows and Amazons was or that that's yes, a, so that's yeah. too. So it's it's a group of four, yes, but they're yeah. two families. But again, I think they form a family, that type of family, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. And it would have been great. It, it kind of highlighted that there are there. It, it's that feeling of every they're going off and having a great time. Wouldn't that be wonderful to do? Um, 
but uh, so it was that enjoying reading about it, thinking it was exciting, but it, it kind of um, underlying that you were. But of course, nobody really did, you know. Even in the nineteen forties, <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> children weren't really packed off to go and um, hopes, yeah. live on an island. <laughs> for several weeks unsupervised I'm sure that still wasn't you know that was a part of the attraction but it, it was that escapism wasn't it so uh yeah, yeah, yeah. um it's I think one childhood really resembles it. Yeah. no <laughs> um from children's book one one sort of only child book is the borrowers with Arietti with her family which I thought mm. was quite realistic so I think that's that was a good model where she does have adventures but it isn't necessarily yeah, yeah. in a big gang. So, yeah, that, she's close that's with quite a nice and, example. Yeah. She's very close with them. Um, and I think also with her, though, there's that additional thing that initially it's that not even knowing if they're the only family that's left, which I think is quite, um, coming back to that as an yeah. adult, you kind of wonder if that's a reflection on wider issues. They're almost becoming like refugees um, yeah, when they have yeah. to leave the home. So I, I wondered whether that was a way of processing things like you know having to be evacuees or or the refugee situation in Europe and things like that so um I think the borrowers was it was a good example yeah. so yeah one of the examples I wrote down for only children is Winnie the Pooh um which is yeah obviously there's only one child in it and he's an only child but he creates this family for himself uh, it's a imaginative world I think it's interesting when you see the sort of there's always a occasional hints of the reality um of the imaginative boy's life that sort of pop up every now and then often in the illustrations but uh it was an interesting example of he, I mean, he doesn't seem to have any human friends frankly no. but, uh, but he's man managed to <laughs> managed to make this alternative world for himself uh one hopes that he occasionally saw humans as well yes <laughs> backdrop of <laughs> the toys and then there's, I guess there's somewhere about only children who, like George and the Famous Five, who sort of latch onto to wider families, but not just in children's books. So we did Dusty Answer by Rosamund Lehman on the podcast a while ago, which um, is about, I think at the beginning, she's a young, maybe like teenage girl moving in next door to this big family. And then it follows for decades afterwards as her life continues to interact with all of them. But um, it's... I thought it was an interesting look at being both in and out of that circle. So in many ways she's involved in their lives and, and they welcome her in, but there's always that line where they they are in and she is out, which is, yeah, an interesting dynamic to play with. Well, I guess we should come to decision-making time. Uh, are you going to go for a big family or a small family? Um, I think I'm going to go for a small family, um, but ideally one that maybe can have the option to uh, become a composite family, I think, for interest. So there we are. I hope that's not a compromise. <laughs> oh, we often end up on a compromise. <laughs> um, uh, I am, I think because of my love of things like Guide Your Daughters and um, Pride and Prejudice, we haven't even mentioned. Yes. But uh, yeah, a, a big, a big sprawling family has my heart. So um, I think I'm going to, as long as the twins aren't, aren't creepy, I'm going to go with a big family. <laughs> um great and then on to the second half two novels George Orwell's most famous novels uh, I imagine is true uh Animal Farm in 1984 uh would you like 
to introduce us to one of them, Owen? Um, yes, I suppose theoretically we should start with Animal Farm because I, I, I feel that that Animal Farm then leads into 1984, I suppose. Um, so it's Animal sense. Farm, <laughs> originally subtitled A Fairy Tale. Um, mm. And this is the tale of um, the animals of Manor Farm. Um, it take over the farm and expel the human owners um, in a parallel with the Russian Revolution. Um, and we find out how that plays out um, as uh, the pigs take um the role as the sort of leaders of the revolution and it's a commentary on um stalinism and how uh communism played out in that situation i think is is basically the summary of uh the novel there yeah great um i don't want Um, to just say too much too soon so yes yes that's fine yeah uh, (laughs) And then 1984 is, uh, when it was published, was the, the futuristic future, I guess. It, 1984 is before I was born, so it doesn't feel that futuristic <laughs> to me. But um, it's uh, a guy, a guy called Winston Smith is the main character. He lives in this world where Big Brother is always watching you. Your, your, your moves are always monitored. Uh, they live in a world where supposedly there is enormous um, advances. But the, the three slogans of, of the party who rule them are war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. The Ministry of Truth uh, put that out. So there's there's all these double think and various lies that they're being told. Their lives are rigorously controlled. Um, and it's the story of Winston Smith's sort of insurrection, I guess, from within that movement, his attempts to, to get out of it. And um, it doesn't go that well. <laughs> if, you, if you've come across the term Room 101, then that's <laughs> that comes from this book, if you don't know that. And uh, yes, um, it's it's not a cheerful book, but I think it's fair to say. <laughs> Although, yes. uh, um, And Owen, I mean, you were saying that George Orwell is a local boy for you. Well, I don't, yes. Uh, he lived um, in a small village near where I live called Wallington. Um, he, he theoretically lived there for four years. Uh, and he okay. and his wife um, lived in a cottage there, which was also the they ran as a village shop. Um, and they got married mm. in the church. So his wife Eileen, they got married in the church. Although I I kind of qualify this because I believe after the first year that they were living there, they both went off to the Spanish Civil War. Um, so uh-huh. quite how much running in the village shop and quite how much <laughs> time they generally he was. It's, articles I've read also said that he did sort of like smallholder farming and growing vegetables and I thought that sounds like an awful lot to be doing whilst also <laughs> writing and going to the well, Spanish Civil yes. War so <laughs> I'm not sure how strong the claim is but um, there's a farm in Wallington called Manor Farm um, which is supposedly the inspiration for you know the setting for Manor Farm in Animal Farm Right. Um, yes. I mean, yeah. my village, I grew up in had a farm called Manor Farm, yes, so I'm not exactly, sure. Exactly. <laughs> <much good> <laughs> uh, and when did you first uh, read these books? 
Now, Animal Farm um, was, like most people, I, it was a book that we read in school. So I think I was probably about mm. 13. Um, okay. So it was a, a compulsory reading. Um, and yeah. 1984, I read probably quite shortly after when I think it was that year. So when I was 15, um, in the sort of GCSE years. And it wasn't a set text, but I think over that intervening summer, we'd been given a list of, of books it would be a good idea to read <laughs> over the summer. Um, uh, I think it included Jane Eyre, so I, I obviously uh, didn't quite get, get the <laughs> mark on the that. Boxes. No, um, but 1984 was um, one of the ones that I did read from the list. And um, I, I have to say it was one of those where I can still now remember reading it and it hmm. did have a big impact on me and I still I've re I've read it again I think in my 20s and then this week I've listened to the audiobook and um but I can still f feel many of the feelings and experiences that I felt when I, I read it when I was 15 but I think often things that you read and first come to when you're at that age stay with you very strongly don't they yeah, yeah. so um so it definitely did have um a big impact on me and and was you know memorable not just in terms of the story but um rereading passages you go oh yes i remember this piece of writing and i remember these words and um so yeah it's it's definitely stayed yeah, with yeah. me yeah so when did when did you first read them simon yeah, a little bit older, but not that much older. So I think mm. I was 17 or 18. And I th I don't actually remember reading 1984, the, the age I was. But So maybe a little, maybe I was a bit um, younger for that, because I think that was one of the first adult novels I ever read. I, I came mm. to them late because I spent a long time <laughs> reading trashy teenage fiction. So I was maybe 14 or 15 when I read 1984, and yeah, a couple of years older when I read Animal Farm. And I loved, I particularly loved 1984, when I first read it and it was this you know very much eye-opening to a whole new world of literature and I didn't I knew, knew nothing about literary history so I didn't you know all classics sort of existed on a on a plane of simultaneity I guess so you know the fact that Pride and Prejudice was written a century before or century and a half before uh 1984 was sort of you know lost to me as if they're all classics so so to find something that quite visceral I guess um mm. was was a surprise uh, and I have read it a few times over the years. I, and I saw, a, I actually saw a play of it uh, maybe five years ago. Uh, well, whichever day it was, was the day that Donald Trump had authorized waterboarding, which I remember because there was very realistic waterboarding in it. And it was very, at one point during this play, I had my fingers in my ears and my eyes shut. And I thought, why have I paid money to come to this? <laughs> it was really horrible. Also, the only play I've ever come to where you could choose whether to go on a nude night or not. Okay. Not the audience being in the nude, I hasten to add. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were on a non-nude night, so I didn't know to the extent that the characters were nude. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then Animal Farm, I hadn't reread until yesterday. So I uh, re it's so slim; it's my copy's under ninety pages, so uh, very easy to to get through very quickly. Interestingly, with nineteen eighty four, a book that I had listened to um, on audio when I was maybe 
11 say was hunky parker's watching you I don't know if that means anything to you it's in the no. demon headmaster series by Gillian cross okay Did you come across those no i think yeah. um <laughs> i remember it had been made into a tv series but i think i think i was a mm, bit old mm. by then so i think it was a bit uh, yes <laughs> yes i was the perfect age for watching this thing which is about uh the demon headmaster is was using subliminal frames and hypnotism and things to take over children's minds essentially and then hunky park is watching you was what maybe the third in the series which is essentially quite as, as i remember it relatively close mirroring of the world of 1984 but with um a pig called hunky parker who is mm. who spoilers turns out to be the demon headmaster okay. <laughs> which, you know, since it was in the demon headmaster series shouldn't have come as the shock to me that it did at the time but, um <laughs> so yeah i was sort of introduced to the thoughts uh of, of, and ideas of 1984 very sort of watered down before I read it. <laughs> um, but yeah, as you say, they're both, well, I, I didn't say about 1984, actually, but it's it's clearly also about, they've got a very strong political uh, things to say. Um, I was wondering how, how your thoughts about them have changed over the years. Um, coming back to them both this week, I think... I think my feelings are, are very much the same as they mm. they were at the time. I think coming back to 1984, um, I don't know whether this is because of uh, the times that we're living in now, um, but I think, or whether it's because I'm older now, um, there are passages in that that I think when I was 15, I thought were horrific, but now I there are passage I like to think specifically um the scene where they're showing the film in the cinema with the refugee boat and reading mm. that as a fifteen year old, yes, yes, you thought that was horrific, but you think, oh how that wouldn't ever be shown in a cinema mm, for people's, mm. you know, and, and now I'm not saying that happens, but I think with with the the situations you know the, the refugee situations that we've seen and mm-hmm. state responses to that you go well actually um you know I could it's not as far no not far-fetched but it it, it was much more raw and painful mm-hmm. to read um because you it is possible to imagine that a state would you know do things extreme yeah, measures yeah. to to um on, to act on refugees and and that was very it, it i didn't think because obviously when i was 15 it was still the cold war <laughs> and okay, i yeah. i kind of i don't think if you'd have said to me um you know by 2022 do you think um the world be more or less dangerous and i kind of think i, I think i mm-hmm. you had this idea of progress that things would get better and things would improve. So I think no, actually, it wasn't Cold War because the Berlin Wall would have fallen. So I think you, we were in that stage where you thought, you know, there will Bright be more peace sort of, and yeah. things. Well, you know, not yeah. that it will, everything will be marvelous, but um, I do think. I mean, particularly the edition that I have, it talks about um, how it came to be translated into Ukrainian because of Ukrainian refugees mm. reading it in the refugee camp and wanting it to be translated into Ukrainian. And you think, oh my God, here we, you know, here we are yeah, again. Yeah. Here we are again. Um, so yeah, I, had I a, think a, more painful similar... in many ways. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, yeah. Sam. 
Yeah, I, no, sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I felt similarly about uh, the way both books talk about, or the way that politician figures in both books talk about truth. So in, in Animal Farm, uh, they particularly there's, there's a pig called Snowball who is considered a great hero at first, and then he, uh, his his nemesis sort of becomes the victor in that in a sham election, and then every future ill is blamed on Snowball, and they rewrite what what happened. So originally he's this great victor in a in a battle, and then over time he becomes a bystander, and then the instigator from the other side in the retellings of this. And similarly in 1984, the big the big thing that they want to show to to break to finally break someone's mind is I can't remember the exact exactly how it goes. You know, holding up three things. Was it saying one plus one is three? Is that what it is? Uh, is uh, two plus like, two is five. Things? Yes. Five. There we go. Yes, yeah. that's it. Yeah. They, and yeah, <laughs> both both equally incorrect. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, and and yeah, similarly when I first read them, they seemed like you know monsters in novels, whereas you know we see the alternative facts coming out of trump's government we see the way that uh lying in parliament is not always uh frowned upon <laughs> and um yeah i'm not gonna yeah there's this and of course many much worse regimes around the world where truth is used as a weapon uh and i think when i was 18 i was very naive and didn't know anything really about um world politics and i certainly still don't know enormous amounts but but seeing the way that every day or even yeah putin justifying the his invasion to his government by saying that he's tackling nazism all this the way that the truth is repackaged to suit what somebody wants to do uh yeah i find it more chilling now i guess and, yes. and it feels less less remote as a, in the same way that you were saying uh, I think, yeah, it, it is that that well, this wouldn't happen again because this has happened before, you know. So, so mm, you mm. know, we've seen Stalinism, we've seen what happened in World War Two, and it's that oh well, that won't happen again because we've learned. And it, as you say, you, we're now in that position. Go well, it it is happening again. Um, yeah. And what is it's that in this rewriting of the truth. Um, this is one of the things that I think um, is 1984 is an imagined future. Um, mm. So what's quite interesting to me, particularly from a, a librarian perspective, is is how information is recorded and changed. Um, mm. And this is one of the things that I find interesting in these books where you have an imagined future is that um, although essentially it's correct in that the facts are rewritten and suppressed. Um, but it's, I find it interesting. So in 1984, but also in, um, say, Philip K. Dick's, um, so the book that Blade Runner was based on, um, Do Androids mm. Dream of Electric Sheep? There's this imagined future with technology, but they didn't predict how information would be exchanged. So now we have the internet. So there's mm. Always, mm. always this technology and... Um, a very advanced mechanisms of control, um, but they're still rewriting paper editions of newspapers or um, yeah. <laughs> looking, looking phone up, like like in um, do Andrew's, Android's dream of electric sheep. They've got flying cars. They've got realistic thinking, intelligent androids. But he looks up people's addresses in a, pho a paper phone directory. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that's that. that I mean, that's an aside, but it. I think it's this, it did kind of predict how 
because obviously with the internet now we have surveillance capitalism. So there mm-hmm. is this, instead of having a tele screen, we're carrying this around in the form of our phone, this device that can, you know, by our search histories and things like that, corporations yeah. can know sometimes more about us than we might even know about ourselves. <laughs> and what all doesn't really sort of predict, I guess, is how willingly people will participate in that. And, you know, it's yes. not just screens in your room that you can't avoid that someone else has put there. But as you yes. say, we all know that our phones can do these things and we all, you know, we're almost all of us think that's a bargain worth making for in order to have a smartphone or something. and it makes our yeah. life um easy and amusing and i think that's the bit that yeah. is is missing from 1984 is that um it talks about power and control um mm. but it is that human being, beings will, we all hand things over just for things being slightly amusing or made easier um so I think the vision that he had, it, it is very realistic, but I do think there are aspects of human nature that would either undermine it or make it easier without the powers that are in control having mm, to mm, mm. use the techniques that, that they do in the book. But, yeah. So. Yeah, and I guess an interesting difference between the books, I mean, as I say, Animal Farm is much shorter and it, it does have that sort of fable feel to it, whereas 1984 has more of a world, including a romance plot mm-hmm. uh, with Julia. We won't we won't give away the whole whole plot that happens there, but uh, yeah, what do you make of, of Julia? Julia, yes, it's... Um... It's kind of almost I could imagine an alternative 1984 where um, it's kind of a prematurely middle-aged repressible servant <laughs> finds love. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> kind of thing, because it's, it's the parallel thing is, is um, so at the beginning of the novel, Winston Fields is discussed to pretty much everyone, including himself. Um Julia, I think I, I, this is one of the things though that the, the way his characters, at least, their attitudes to towards women are, yeah, that's quite unhealthy in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, Julia, I mean, I think she is she's quite a strong character. I mean, she uh, something that comes up in both books is talking about intelligence. And Winston's mm-hmm. character says, oh, well, she's not intelligent. But she, I think she just has a different form of intelligence. I think she's got much more emotional intelligence and she's much more, I don't know, what you might say, streetwise um, and practical. Mm-hmm. And Winston is, he's an intellectual and, a, you know, given the opportunity, a dreamer, isn't he, I think. So he's very wedded yeah, yeah, yeah. to his uh sort of philosophical and theoretical notions where Julia's very practical and and she she's a her strength is is, is a sort of physical strength and she's much more connected and has a positive relationship with her own body which Winston doesn't have um because he's very repressed (laughs) Um, and I think <laughs> repressed beyond, you know, there's levels of repression that he has, which, as I said, in a world, in a, a parallel novel, this character would still um, ha- probably have quite an unhealthy relationship 
with sort of his physical self. And it's only through his relationship with Julia that he starts to become comfortable with himself and also comfortable with other people. Um, mm, mm. So I think she is, she's got sort of a, a more vital force to her than Winston has. Do you, do you agree with that? Do you think that's fair? <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I think I like that your idea of that parallel novel, uh, and I can certainly see. I mean, I I remember reading it and really, really liking Julia's character and the way that she brought him alive, in, and hopefully not in too much of a sort of manic pixie dream girl way. Mm. I, I think she is more interesting than that. Um, and I like. I thought it interesting that their assignations were in this this room. Um, is it proles they refer to them as? Yes, <laughs> this, yes, yeah. Is this sort of um, Verticomas subclass who aren't involved in all the surveillance and all this, um, uh, I guess, power dynamic because they are considered by those in power to be beneath it and mm. um, only by sort of blending in that world can Winston discover more about himself and Julia helps him to do that. I was also, yeah, having this... this um, vitality herself uh yeah everything doesn't go entirely to plan but i think mm. but, I, but i think there is enough all there that is is much more um about two people changing when they discover each other uh which you know would have been lovely but um <laughs> it's not meant, <laughs> meant to be but i mean there are some lovely characters at animal farm as well i mean it's hard not to fall in love with boxer um who's a no I'm getting this wrong horse donkey yes one of those, yes. I forget which horse, uh, who um, very sweet and compassionate and unquestioning, who went, yeah, doesn't think he's um, very intelligent. And I was saying he, and now I'm not even sure if it's, if Fox is a he yeah, or she. Yeah, there's, but anyway, there's you know, Boxer yeah. who is he, and then another horse, Clover, who is a she, and they're both Clover, very, right. very kind yeah. and gentle, aren't they? I think so. Um, yeah. And Benjamin the donkey, who is the old cynic, who I rather like. Yes, yes, who's uh, seen it all. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, he he basically it was basically ascribed different character traits to different uh, species, hasn't he? But um, I found I found it very chilling at times. The word chilling again, like when the the the, the first time the pigs used the dogs as their sort of, I guess. SS equivalent or something, but yeah, they're, they're armed guards, and it's something that's when it changes from being this this fable to being something much darker, I suppose, mm. or continues to be a fable. But, but yeah, and there's something that so those pups have been removed from their mother shortly mm, after mm. birth, and and this is I think that's a theme, another theme that Orwell covers in both books is that um, trying to control the young by removing them from their families or alienating mm -hmm. them from their families um, so that the dogs are alienated from, you know, withdrawn from the family so they can be trained up to be detached from the other farm animals. And I think the same thing happens with the, the young piglets that are obviously Napoleon, the um, uh, leader pig's offspring, and they're kept separately mm. as well. Um and in 1984, Winston's parents um, are you know, vaporized, and so he's take he he has to go to a home for children, which we don't hear anything about that in the book. Mm -hmm. um, but there's there's a lot. So with his neighbors' children, 
they're part of um, like youth organisations, which ultimately will turn them against their parents. So there's a lot of um, in both books about kind of controlling, indoctrinating the young by making them separate from society. Um, And I did wonder almost again whether this related to, because I thought for Winston, so he'd been separated from his family when he was about 10, and I thought, well, what would that be like? And I thought, well, Boyle probably knows a bit of what that was like because he went through this sort of public school boarding school system where... Okay, you're not completely removed from your family, but I, 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 he did write an essay where he spoke out against the um, practice of sending children away to boarding school at such a young age. So I almost wonder whether there's a thread of that in there as well. Again, so not overtly political, yeah. but you know, he went to Eton. We know some other people. <laughs> Um, the, you know, it's this idea of of, of yeah. being trained to be leaders and separate and different. So, so um, the rules are different, um, and see, yeah. seeing other members of society is is separate from from you. Um, so, I, I did mm-hmm. I did wonder whether that was an element of that in there as well. That's interesting. Mm. Um, have um, you read much else by Orwell outside these books then? Um, I've read I, a few years, I think when I was quite young, I read some of his essays, but I couldn't tell you which ones they were. I have read um, Keep the Aspidistra Flying, mm, which was, yeah. um, I I read it and at the end it, uh, it made me feel as, kind of as though somebody's gone over my heart with a Brillo pad, basically. <laughs> so, that's not to say it's a bad book. It's not a bad book, but it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's tough. It's tough going, I think. So, yeah. Um, and frustrating and annoying. Um, yes, yeah. And, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but I do believe that Orwell didn't want it to be, pu- didn't want to be published, but needed the money or something like that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, but I haven't read any of his others yet. So yeah, that's yeah. the Which only other one of I've read actually. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I read Keep Yesterday to Fly, Flying. Um, uh, I don't know two or three years ago, and I thought it was brilliant. But as you say, oh, so frustrating. The pride of the main character. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's so annoying. So, so yeah, he's basically always deeply impoverished, but won't accept help from from anyone except someone who. He demands a relative. He demands help from. We can't really afford it. Um, yeah. Oh, he was. He's so infuriating. But at the, at the same time, you want good things. Uh, <laughs> his life. You see. You, you feel like his life could so easily go on track if he just made a couple sensible decisions. Yes, and and he's uh, another one that is sort of um, disgusted with everyone. Like like at the yes, beginning yeah. of nineteen eighty four, Winston is disgusted by everyone. And uh, yeah, that that um, was it. Gordon is his. Name Gordon. Oh, I can't remember. I can't but, remember, yeah, but he's yeah. disgusted with everyone. Um, but I think all three books have a bit of. Uh, um, what's hard about them is that I think they they all follow this arc where there's a development, and then the theme is that well, you can't win, you can't mm. win, <laughs> um, and I think that is what is quite tough with them because I remember reading Animal Farm in 1984 when a teenager and you were kind of waiting for that heroic moment (laughs) when Mm, somebody mm. or something would intervene and save the day. And um, 
it doesn't quite and again and keep the aspidistra flying you're kind of waiting for that moment where something will change and it will save the day but it it doesn't really it's a compromise at the end and he becomes part of the system that he didn't want to be part of so that's not yeah, giving too yeah. much away but yeah <laughs> yeah and i've i read homage to catalonia which i thought was brilliant as well but um about his time in the spanish civil war mm-hmm. uh, and i have read some essays but the only one i can remember is the one about making a cup of tea which is brilliant okay. <laughs> <laughs> and specifically the line where he talks about people putting sugar in tea and he says one might as well add salt <laughs> so <laughs> which is what i often think of um We've gone on over time, so we should probably make our decision making. Uh, There's so much to say about these books. They're so, uh, and I think it has brilliant endings as well. Obviously, Mm. we won't spoil them, but both really clever, brilliant endings. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Of the two, Owen, which will you choose? It would have to be 1984. Yeah, no question for me. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think I think they're both really clever. I think 1984 has just more going on, more more to it. Um, there we go. Well, in the next episode, we will as do those books we promised last time, which are The Feast by Margaret Kennedy and Grand Canyon by Vita Sackville West, and Rachel will be back. But thank you so much, Owen, for for stepping in Rachel's shoes so capably. It's been wonderful to have you. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> and yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Bye. Thank you so much, Owen, for being part of this episode. You can find all the books and authors mentioned at stuckinabook.com. You can join that community that Arwen is part of at patreon.com forward slash tlbooks. You'll get episodes a bit early. You'll join people like Arwen, Randy, Elizabeth, Liana, so many people, great people. <laughs> You'll get other bonus bits. You might even end up on a future episode. Who knows? You can find Rachel at booksnob.wordpress.com and she will be back next time. She's us, don't worry, we haven't fallen out. Well, no more than usual. And you can get in touch at tea or books at gmail.com and look forward to chatting to you next time. Bye.